It is great to be sharing God's word with you again. And uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll be looking at three verses today. We'll be looking at verses 19 to 21. As we continue to look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Read with me. Verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there... Will your heart be also? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word. And we pray this morning that our hearts would be open and willing to receive the seed that you would have planted there. We pray that the Spirit will be working even now, meeting the needs. And Father, even the, uh, the closed doors, Lord, of our hearts. I pray that your name would be glorified in this message, that I would be hidden behind your cross. And only Jesus would be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, recently, a friend of mine gave me a gift for my birthday, which is around September. And it was a video, a set of videos, and it was entitled The Men Who Built America. Anyone seen that series? Seen that series, yeah. We bought it for me on, uh, on DVD, and I hadn't had a chance to watch it, but as you would appreciate, I've had some time off recently. I've been stuck at home for a whole month. So that was one of the things I thought I'd get, you know, I'd do. And I uh, actually found it very, very interesting. Uh, I had recognised most of the names in that video, although I didn't associate them and didn't understand much about their lives. Names like uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford. These are the names of the people that, that, that the author was saying, or the, the people that put this thing, actually had built up. America to be the, the greatest um, power in the world. And I found it interesting from the point of view, not just that these men were extraordinary individuals from an earthly point of view, but the actual way that they interacted with each other, because most of them actually knew each other. Uh, Morgan knew about Rockefeller and he knew about Andrew Carnegie. And Andrew Carnegie um, also knew, Henry, uh, sorry, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford. They had interactions with each other. Did anyone know what um, Rockefeller was famous for? What was his main thing that he got rich with? Oil. What about Andrew Carnegie? Steel. Uh, we all know about Thomas Edison. He invented the light bulb and, and eventually um, ended up... Uh, putting electronic or electric lights in the streets of America because of the inventions that he, uh, that he made. Henry Ford, we know about um, through the car industry. And uh, J.P. Morgan was basically an investor. He would take struggling companies or companies that, would, that were competing with each other but weren't making any money and actually get them together. So they became profitable companies. And he, he took a part of each of those companies and, and amassed his wealth. The wealth of these individuals was so great, as I, as I looked at this particular series, 
that no one today even matches or comes close to what they, the wealth that they had. Just to give you, a, give you an idea, Andrew Carnegie made his wealth through steel, and he made it just when or before the Americans started building, like, you know, the, the skyscrapers. The reason that they could build skyscrapers is because Carnegie developed a new system of making steel that was stronger and tougher. So New York and all the big cities in America are built with Carnegie steel. He was one of the reasons that, that they could build long or tall towers like that. Now, Carnegie lived 1835 to 1919. And just to give you an example, when he died, he had the equivalent of $300 billion of wealth. $300 billion, not million, billion. That's $300,000 million. Now, he, he could literally almost pay off Australia's debt John Rockefeller was worth $670 billion. Now, compare that to Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world today. Bill Gates was worth about 70. So these, these men had extraordinary wealth. I look at one person, in, just, just in particular. Now, Andrew Carnegie was not a Christian. He was Scottish, which is probably a benefit <laughs> when it comes to money. But it was interesting because Andrew Carnegie, even at, the, at a younger age, had a, his, he had a dictum. He had this, he had this uh, philosophy in life, and he said he wanted to spend the first third of his life to get all the education he could. He wanted to spend the second third of his life making all the money he could and the third part of his life to give that away to worthwhile causes. That was his philosophy of life. Now, he wasn't a Christian. And by the, end of, by the end of his life, Carnegie gave away what in today's term would be equivalent to $10 billion. Now, he started too late. He started a lot later than what he expected to actually uh, start giving money away. And he, he kept away from religion, right? But he loved music so much... And there's a Carnegie, the hall, the music hall. It's still, still standing. A lot of the places he's built are still standing today. Um, he loved music so much that he donated thousands of organs to churches just because he loved music. Now, this is a man who wasn't a Christian, but I want you to hear something he wrote to himself in a memo at age 33. He wrote this. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. Idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. So this is not... He maybe had, he had heard about, about these types of principles, but he hated, he thought that it was the worst type of idolatry to worship money. So in order to avoid uh, degrading himself, he wrote a memo to himself at age 35 that he would pursue the practice of philanthropic giving. Now, a philanthropist is someone who gives to other people. Because he said, the man who dies thus, rich, dies disgraced. So, before he died, he had given away about $10 billion worth of wealth. 
Now, he wasn't a Christian. Neither was, I don't know these other men. I do want to know about Rockefeller. Actually, Rockefeller was what? Does anyone know? Rockefeller was a Baptist. He grew up in a fairly strict Baptist church. And Rockefeller, as he was, as he was amassing his wealth, gave 10% or a tithe of everything that he earned to the Baptist church. In fact, because of him, many churches were actually built. Not only churches, but he built schools, museums, libraries. A lot of, a lot of the money that he gave as a result of that benefited other people. Now, today, Bill Gates, is he a Christian, Bill Gates? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't classify him as a Christian in the uh, in, in least sense. Has a net worth of about $78 billion. Now, as of 2007, Bill and Melinda Gates were the second most generous philanthropists in America, having given away already $28 billion to charity. And the couple plan, before they die, to donate 95% of their wealth. It's a nice thing to do, isn't it? Now, why have I told you about people that aren't Christians that have amassed huge wealth during their lifetimes? It's simply this. Despite their massive wealth, wealth so great that they could literally buy countries, and, and, and in fact... J.P. Morgan, when he was alive, was so rich, he would lend money to the government. The government would go to him, cap in hand, and say, we need money to do some, one thing or another. They realised that amassing wealth does not bring happiness. They realised that even though they had so much money in the bank, that it did not bring fulfilment so they decided, or they found out, what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago, that it was more blessed to give than to receive. They realised sometime in their life, whether they had heard that statement or not, that it was actually better for you as an individual to give than to amass or to take. Now, don't get me wrong, these people were in business ruthless. They were absolutely ruthless people. But by, towards the end of their lives, they, they decided that they could be successful. Hear me out here. That you can be successful in life and still be giving. Now, the passage we've read today, which says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through to steal. That laying up refers to the desire just to build up wealth, to build up storehouses. But the question is, does this mean that I'm not allowed to have assets? Does it mean that it's a sin to have wealth? Anyone want to answer that question this morning? I said, no, okay. Does this mean... That one cannot have wealth and that one needs to, as Jesus, remember the rich ruler that came to the Lord and said, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, do these, follow these commandments. He said, well, I've done those since I was born. And then Jesus says, well, sell everything you've got and come and follow me. And the man, because he was wealthy, 
and he was tied to his wealth, he couldn't do it. Does it mean that we have to do the same? That a person, in order to be a Christian, needs to sell everything that they have? Well, I think some of you have already answered that question. But what does it then say? What is this passage saying? Well, basically what it's saying is to examine the priority of your heart. What is it that you're putting first? Where is it that your heart lies? There's something interesting we should should look at when we look at the scripture is that both Jesus and Paul's ministries were supported by what we would regard as wealthy individuals. Some people who supported their ministries with money were considered wealthy people. Now, if it was wrong to be wealthy, then why would Paul and, and, and the Lord allow them to give money? And some of the most godliest men in the Bible, we would consider very wealthy by our standards today. And the Bible calls Abraham a man of faith, yet Abraham was very, very wealthy. The Bible even lists his wealth. And Job's as well, the Bible says, was a godly man. Job was one of the wealthiest men in the world at that stage. Isaac and Jacob were no doubt wealthy. And if you look at King David and Solomon and a number of other individuals, they were very wealthy. The Bible still says they were holy. How do you balance those two things out? How can you be wealthy and still be holy? Now, in this passage, and you notice the previous weeks, I've, I've spoken about prayer, fasting and alms, which is giving to the poor. Jesus was addressing a false notion of the, that the people had and the Pharisees had and their teachers had given them. And, and that was this, that if you were wealthy in life, it was a sign that God was blessing you. It was a sign that you were in God's favour, that you were somehow better than other people. And if you were poor, well, God wasn't blessing you because there's something wrong with you. Same thing if you were sick. If you were sick, if there was some ailment that you had or if you had some crippling disease, they would teach them that, oh, obviously that person is a sinner. There is something wrong with them. So God's judging them. So temporal wealth and health was a sign of God's favour and poverty was a sign of his disfavour. Instead, Jesus turns this whole idea on its head. You see, there's a story that Jesus gives about a rich man, the Bible says, who, who ate sumptuously every day while outside his gate lay a poor beggar named Lazarus. That poor man who lay outside of his gate ended up dying and so did the rich man. The rich man found himself in hell and Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And the motto of that story is that poverty and poverty is not a sign of God's disfavour. Neither are riches a sign of God's favour on an individual and that how you use your wealth 
really determines where your heart is. And it's the heart that God always drills down to here. The outward, look, we see the outward. We judge a person often from the outward appearance, by the things that people say, but God judges the heart. He can see on the inside. He can see the secret motives that people have. And oftentimes we even deceive ourselves about our own motives. The Bible says that the word of God is like a two-edged sword that's able to cut asunder. Even the joints in the marrow, it gets deep down and, and reveals what's going on inside of our lives. And that's what this passage is doing. So this passage, just to set the groundwork, does not mean that you should not work hard, does not mean that you can't be successful in business, but rather it addresses not just the gaining of wealth, but your attitude towards it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. We'll look at a couple of verses that would indicate that God expects us to be productive and fruitful, not just in our spiritual lives, but also in our temporal lives as well. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Look what it says there. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. In other words, make sure you don't forget him. Make sure you put him first. For it is he that giveth thee power to do what? To get wealth. That he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as is this day. God gives man the ability to get wealth. In other words, to work and to earn an income. It's God who does that. Now, can I ask you a question? Does God give bad gifts? I haven't heard of a gift that God gave that was bad. So the ability that God gives man to be productive and to gain wealth is also a good gift. But like with every gift that God gives, there's, there's an opportunity to, to abuse that gift. To everything that God gives us. Every gift that God gives us can be abused. And we see that happening all the time. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12 verse 14 says, Behold, this is Paul speaking, the third time I am ready to come to you, the Corinthians. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours. I'm not looking after your goods. I'm not seeking to take anything from you. But look what it says. But the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now what's lay up mean? Well, lay up is the same thing that it speaks of in Matthew. Lay up which means to, to build. And it says here that the expected thing would be that parents would build and work to provide a future for their children. It was an expected thing. So it's not wrong 
to want to give your children a good future. That's expected. In fact, the Bible says that he who doesn't work to provide for his own family is worse than an infidel. So what is it the Lord wants us to understand from this passage? So what I've basically given you is what it's not. Okay? What it's not. Now I'm going to give you what it is. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth or rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through to steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Jesus' day, there were three main ways you would either demonstrate or show your wealth to people around you. Three main ways. Okay, And it's not unlike today. One was the clothes that you wore. Has that changed? No. That's why people are into designer brands and, and expensive things. Because one way you show other people, one way you demonstrate wealth are the clothes that you wear, the types of clothes that you wear. People in Jesus' day demonstrated their wealth the same way. And one of the ways you would do it is that the clothes you would wear were made of a finer texture or were coloured a certain way. You see, when, when Jesus was being mocked, remember when the, the guards took him and they began to mock him? Does anyone know what they threw on top of him? What clothes they threw on top of him? It was a purple robe. Turn with me to, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. So you understand this. I always struggle when I read this passage. I was, it hits me emotionally. So if I start getting a bit too emotional, I'm sorry. Mark 15 verse 17 says, And they clothed him with purple, and they plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him. And bowing their knees, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off, what does it say there? The purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to be crucified. Do you know why they put a purple robe on him? This purple was indicative of a king, of a rich person. So they put a crown on his head and they made him hold a reed and they, they threw a, um, a purple robe and they beat him and they mocked him. So the way you, one of the ways that people demonstrate their, their wealth back then and even now, the clothes that you wore. The second way you would demonstrate that you were a wealthy person was a type of food that you ate. Go to the finest restaurants. And how much food you had stored. You know, how many how many barns you had full. Luke chapter you don't need to turn there, but Luke chapter 16, verse 19 says, And there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple, okay, in fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. 
fared sumptuously every day. I mean, do we, what does sumptuously mean? Well, it says that he ate extravagantly. I get the, the, the impression of, you know, that, that old Henry VIII picture of him with the big... Um, was that a turkey or was that a... Uh, what was it? It was huge. And he'd just be munching away that thing. Anyway. To eat extravagantly was, was a sign that you were wealthy. But Jesus also tells of another story, another parable of another rich man um, where he isn't just eating extravagantly, but he does something else with food. Turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Luke 12, 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall of thee. Then whose shall these things or those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's very similar to the passage where we're looking at. So this man had one of the ways that, that you were considered wealthy was how much stuff you had accumulated in your barns, how much stock you had, which would give you not just prosperity, but security in your life. This is a perfect example of what Jesus is warning about in our passage today. His heart sought to lay up goods for himself, trusting in earthly riches. But in this case, it wasn't the earthly riches that decayed or got lost or, or whatever. He ended up going before the, before the riches went. Now, the final way that you would be considered wealthy was obviously to have silver and gold and precious jewels. And Paul the Apostle says that one of, the way, one of the things he, he says when he's speaking to the, uh, to the church is, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. In other words, to be greedy meant you wanted those things. But you'd be judged for your wealth by how much silver and gold you actually had and how many precious jewels you had. Of course, and if you had jewels and if you had gold or silver... You could buy what, pretty much whatever you wanted. You could buy livestock. And if you own land, then that land, as the, the rich man experienced over here, could produce and you could sell those goods and make more money. And those things were always interchangeable. Which brings us to the risks with these things. With clothes and food and gold and silver. Jesus says... Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, these types of things, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves 
breakthrough in steel. Now the risks align, interestingly, with, the, with these things over here. Your wardrobe may be full of the finest linen and silk. First risk, the way you show your wealth. You may have the nicest clothes sitting in your wardrobes, but there may be a little creature that's relatively harmless that could be eating away slowly at the clothes that you have without you even knowing about it. Moths can eat the most expensive clothes, mould can get to them and other things can happen. In today's clothes, in today's uh, society, clothes don't tend to get eaten by moths. The greatest risk for clothes today is that what? They go out of fashion. So if something goes out of fashion, then obviously it lessens in value and you need to go and buy something else. So moths can destroy your demonstration of your wealth. Look at the next one. It says rust. Rust. What's rust got to do with? Well, on, on, on the face of it, you'd think rust has to do with the metals. So metal, maybe he's talking about the silver and gold. Well, yeah, I've got news for you. Gold doesn't rust. Neither do jewels. You can put a bar of gold in a room and a thousand years later, it'll still be there. Silver doesn't really rust. It tarnishes, but it doesn't rust through. And, and precious jewels don't, don't rust either. So what has rust got to do with? Believe it or not, it has to do with food. Food. So the moth was for the clothes. The rust is for the food. And you might think, oh, he's gone to some Greek dictionary somewhere and he's, you know, he's pulled something out of some, something. Well, no, I didn't go to the dictionary. Actually, I went to the dictionary, but I went after the dictionary. I went to the Oxford Dictionary first. And I found something interesting. It says that rust, by definition, is a reddish or yellowish-brown flaking coating of iron oxide that is formed on iron or steel by oxidation in the presence of moisture. We know about that. That's rust. But then it gives another one, definition. And it says rust is a fungal disease of plants which results in reddish or brown patches. In other words, a fungus gets to the plant or the food and begins to consume it. And the rich man decided to build bigger barns and stockpile his food. The risk would be that if there was moisture and he didn't do it properly, and if there was any fungal fungus in there, that it would begin to slowly eat his food from inside out, just as the clothes were being slowly eaten as well. And then I went to the Greek just to check and see what it, what it said in the Greek. And you know what it said? It didn't talk about rust. The definition of that Greek word literally means to eat food, figuratively or literally, to eat food. So the picture is this fungus, this spore, slowly consuming food. So you can have the, the, the nicest clothes where moths can eat them and they go out of fashion. You can have stockpiles of food and there's no guarantee that it'll be there, that it might go off. And the final risk is thieves breaking through to steal. Well, what do thieves break through to steal? They steal your money, your wealth. They steal gold and, and precious jewels. The way we tend to, I mean, probably many of us know of 
people that have had their homes broken into, and or maybe have experienced a, a home breaking yourself, they tend to go for the gold. They tend to go for money more than uh, other things these days because they can exchange it more quickly. But you're probably more you're more likely of losing money these days because of the stock market crashes, downturns in the economy, and inflation that slowly eats your money in the bank. So whether you have fine clothes, food stockpiled to last a lifetime, or mountains of gold and silver, the message is very clear here. It says that they are not secure. They're not safe. They don't make you safe. And, they don't, and there is nothing that you can rely on with those things because they are only temporary. You should not trust or, or have your heart devoted to those things. You can't put your heart into something that isn't secure because in the end, your heart might be broken. It's not nice to have a broken heart. On the other hand, Jesus advises his listeners in verse 20, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. The message is clear. Heaven is secure. It's worth focusing your attention and life, building your wealth there rather than on the earth. There is no risk in heaven if you have wealth accumulated up there, because you know something? God guarantees all returns. There are no stock market crashes. No thieves can break in there. God guarantees whatever you put up there will be there. But the question, the question that comes to me first thing when I read this passage is, what is it? And how do I get it? How do I, I mean, I, I can't, I don't know what's up there. I can't get up to heaven. How do I amass wealth in heaven? And what is that wealth? Well, there's, there are two questions that I'm hoping to answer now. But the, I'll, ask, I'll answer the second question first. How does one obtain riches in heaven? Well, you'll notice that before we read before this passage here, the three previous things that Jesus spoke about were alms, giving to the poor, fasting, and prayer. In each of those cases, Jesus says... When you pray, pray privately. Don't pray out loud in front of everyone to show off because you'll have your reward. But he goes, if you pray in your, in your closet, God will see the way you pray and he'll reward you. The same thing with fasting. And the same thing with giving. So I thought I'd do a bit of a scripture search on rewards. So I did. I typed in reward in my little thing and I looked at the, all the verses that said rewards and spoke about rewards that God gives people. And I found an interesting thing. That these rewards fall into two categories or are associated with two categories. So how to obtain them is associated with two ways, basically. So Matthew chapter 6, if you go back just a little bit, it says, verse 3. Matthew 6, verse 3 says, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, 
that thine arms may be in secret, that thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. All right, giving. Giving is, all right, so giving gives me, offers me a reward that God gives me openly. But why would you give to someone? What is it that spurs your giving to someone? Turn within Mark chapter 9, verse 41. Actually, that's okay. No, don't turn there. I'll, I'll get you to turn to Luke in a minute. Mark chapter 9, verse 41 says, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Or give you a, why would someone give you a cup of water? What motivates them to give you something? And then I found Luke. So Luke, Luke chapter 6, verse 35. And this summed it up for me. Luke chapter 6, verse 35 says, But love ye your enemies, and do good. And lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. Oh, it's a giving. And ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give. And it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, with all it shall be measured unto you. Now that says that men will give you those rewards. But on top, on verse 35, it says, Love your enemies, do good to them, lend, hoping for nothing back, because your reward shall be great. That's what God gives you. So what's the what does... Giving to the poor, giving to other people, do. What does um, uh, doing good to other people, lending to them for nothing in return? It has to do with love. So the first, the first mode, if you look at the rewards in the Bible, and there are more verses, to, but I just don't have the time to go through them all. God expects us to love our fellow man. God expects us to love other people especially those in your family and your church and even your enemies, is a prerequisite or a way to receive riches in heaven. That's my first mode. Now, the second group falls neatly into another category. Look at Matthew 6, verse 6. It says, But when, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray. To thy father, which is in secret. And thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Anyone got a best friend here? Your best friend growing up. Those are often the, the most vivid memories. Who was your best friend growing up? Let me ask you a question. Did you look forward to being with that person? What would you do when you got together? Would you not talk? Would you not communicate with one another? When people are married and marrying each other, 
when people are going out and, and, and taking an interest in each other, don't they want to be together? Don't they want to talk with each other? And families, if you, you love your family, don't you want to be together? Don't you want to talk with one another and interact with one another? What is prayer at the end of the day? If it says to go into your closet and pray by yourself, you're not doing a free show for anyone else. Who's looking at you? It's him. Because you want to spend time with him. You want to be with him, alone with him, to talk with him, to share your burdens with him. Because in the end, you can trust him. You know he's there for you. He's the most faithful friend that you can ever have. So what does it mean to want to pray to God? And what does it mean in verse 17 when it says, But when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. What is fasting? Isn't it denying yourself and saying, I take second preference? And just as John the Baptist said to his own disciples, when they saw Jesus' disciples and Jesus baptising people, they came running back to, the, to John the Baptist and said, uh, Master, that, that man that you baptised the other day, he's, he's out there just baptising disciples himself and his numbers are getting bigger and bigger and ours are getting smaller. And what did John say? Got a nice devotion about this yesterday. John said, answered very wisely, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. What? What does that mean? It means that his love for Jesus, his love for God said that I'm happy to put myself in second position, way behind the other one. To put him first in everything and to understand that he must increase and I must decrease. What is fasting? Fasting means that you love people enough to want to show God that you do love them or you, 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 there are things in your life that you're not happy with and you want to make them right, but for who are you doing all these things? For yourself? No, for him. And tell me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5.11, it says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. There is almost a guarantee with the Lord that if you choose to follow Jesus in your life, that you shouldn't expect to win any popularity contests. If you go out telling people that I believe in, in Jesus Christ and I put my faith in him and he's my, my Lord and my Saviour and I follow what he tells me to do and I believe what he says in the Bible, don't expect for people to, to say, oh, well done. That's amazing. I wish I could do what you do. In fact, Jesus says that you will be persecuted for what you believe. That if you choose to follow Christ, you will be persecuted. But he says rejoice. 
because it happened also to the people before. And great will your reward be in heaven. Now, why? Why would a person put themselves in a position where they can be persecuted, mocked, and live a life that's literally ostracised from their own community? If you're a Muslim and you choose to follow Christ, you may lose your life in many countries or you will, at a, at a, at a minimum, be ostracised from your community. Why would a person do that? Well, because of love. Love will cause you to do the craziest things. Love will cause you to do that which is not physically possible in this world. Why should someone undergo suffering for someone else? For love. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that the Lord shall receive, that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Why would someone serve someone their whole life without being forced to do it? And in everything they do, do it with energy and passion because of love. How does one obtain riches? By loving your fellow man and loving Jesus Christ and loving God. That greatest commandment the Bible teaches is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Loving God and loving your neighbour is the method where you're able to accumulate riches in heaven. But how do you do this? It's because God plants a love in there first. And the Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. God gives us, because of a wonderful relationship that he initiated, the ability to love him back, the ability to love other people. When you come to the cross and you see that love that was shown for you as an individual, when I look at that cross and see what Jesus did for me, a sinner, I can't help but love him back. When Jesus told his disciples, if I be lifted up, I will draw men to myself, draw all men to myself. What was he talking about? The Gospels clearly say that lifting up wasn't, wasn't some sort of worship. It was him being lifted up on a cross. Dying for the sins of this world when the world did not deserve it, neither I nor anyone else in this room nor anyone else out there deserved what he did for us. The just dying for the unjust, the worthy dying for the unworthy. When you experience that love, the Bible says you can't help but love. You can't help but love him in return and you can't help but love everyone else. That relationship opens the door to being able to fulfil that command. 
You can't fulfil that commandment to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, or loving your neighbour as yourself, if you have not experienced the love of God first in your own life. Now, what is the treasure then? I know how to get the treasure. What is it that I'm going to find when I get up there? Am I going to find, well, we know the Bible says that the streets are going to be paved with gold. So is it going to be gold? I don't think so. If we're walking on gold all over the place, is that a treasure? It's common. The Bible says that there's going to be jewels and things all over the place. Are they going to be my riches when I I gather and say, Lord, what is it that you've got for me? What is it that I've accumulated up here? Is he going to say, oh, look, there you go, you've 15 bars of gold, you've got uh, you know, three diamonds and two rubies over there. Oh, fantastic, Lord, thanks for that. And you're walking down streets of gold. No. It's not that type of wealth. Is it clothes? Maybe, maybe you'll open up your wardrobe and you'll find, whoo, look at all the Armani suits and look at all the... Wonderful things that I get to wear up here. Whoa, I'm going to look fantastic in front of everyone. I don't think so. Or maybe you'll open up your your cupboard and you'll see all the most wonderful foods in there. All the Jamie Oliver cookbooks all lined up at the front. No. So if the riches aren't gold and jewels, if the riches aren't food... If the riches aren't going to be clothes, what is it that I'm waiting for up there? What is it that I will find when I get there? What treasure can I expect when I enter those gates? Where is my heart meant to be? Well, the answer to that is very simple this morning. Whether you're praying, whether you're fasting, whether you're being persecuted... The treasure is found in one. It's one treasure that exceeds everything else this world has to offer. It's one treasure that exceeds everything that heaven itself, if you put it all together, has to offer. And that's him. That's Jesus. His greatest treasure. There is one treasure that you can never lose. There's one treasure that was given to you. You never earned. There is one treasure that you should be spending your lifetime investing in. Seeking that treasure more than anything else in this world. And that's him. Some people in this world live for themselves. Some people live for their families, for their careers for the riches and wealth, or maybe for power. The Bible says that all these things don't mean anything because they're only temporary. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? Nothing. Jesus would have you know this morning that true riches, true peace, joy, is found in him and him alone. He's able to offer you everything that you ever need in life. He's able to, to make you so strong that even though the whole world may turn against you, because that relationship you have with him is sustaining, 
You can resist it all. You can be the only one in this world who has a relationship with God and yet be at peace even though the world may be against you. Remember last week I, I told you a bit of a story and one of the studies we've been doing is the, the, the gifts and Moses, when he was brought up to the mountain, said to God, I want to see you. I want, you to, I want to see you. And God said, I can't show you all of me because you'll end up dying. So he hit him in, the, in, a, in a bit of a cleft of a rock somewhere and, and God showed him just his back, just, just, just passing. Moses got to see God's back. Elijah, when he, when he went up in a mountain, fasted 40 days. Both of these men fasted for 40 days and the Lord Jesus fasted for 40 days and there's so many similarities, it's, it's, it's becoming striking. But when Elijah fasted 40 days and went up a mountain, God said, what are you doing up on this mountain, Elijah? And he says, I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous for you because everyone's turned away. The Bible says that God revealed himself to Elijah on that mountain. Do you remember? He revealed himself. And he was looking for God in a, in a, in a thunderstorm or, a, uh, or a, a violent wind, and it wasn't. And, and God said, listen to me in a still, small voice. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, those two men found who they were looking for. Do you remember? There was Jesus who was transfigured and shown in all his glory. And on his left, on his right, were Moses and Elijah. They got what they wanted. They got to see the Lord. That was what they wanted. They received their reward. If Jesus is not the first love of your life, then your love is misplaced. And you are in danger of the judgment of God and in eternity regretting what could have been. If you find yourself in a lake of fire, there is no escape. There is no end. You don't die there. You continue to exist there, devoid of any love, of any peace, only regret, pain and suffering. Understand something very clearly this morning, as I've mentioned already. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save it. And he made him the one way to himself, the one door to go through, to experience that love. There is no other way. There is one track, one path, one road. Every other road leads to damnation. Every other road leads to disappointment. God made one way. And it's only through Jesus Christ can a person find acceptance and a home and a reward in heaven. Outside of Christ, the Bible says, as I've mentioned already, that God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. That's not a pretty picture. It sounds nice off the tongue. It rolls off the tongue and says, you know, God is a consuming fire. That's beautiful. But who wants to be consumed? Would you want to be standing next to that consuming fire? But the Bible says there is a way. And there is a way that God isn't a consuming fire, 
but that he can become a father. And that's through Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, there is a treasure that every person in this world needs so desperately. He is the reason to live and to love. If you don't know him this morning, if you don't, if you can examine yourself and say, I don't have a relationship with him. I have no sense of connection with him, no love. I don't have a desire to speak with him and be with him, to read his word, to know him more and more. Then why wait? Why would you wait to enter into that relationship? There's nothing you have to do and earn and and, and work for. He simply says, come and I will accept you. If you don't know the Lord this morning, then this morning is the perfect time to receive him as your Lord and your Saviour. There is no one else more trustworthy. There is no one else you can rely on more. There is no one else more loving. Believe me. I got saved when I was 19 years of age. Having heard the gospel since I was about 10 years old, and I regret those lost years. I regret not having that relationship for all those years. To me, they were lost. But the Lord was drawing me to him. This morning, the Lord is drawing you to him. He wants for you to enter into a personal, loving relationship with him. He wants to save you from a place that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. Who have no love. Who don't know anything about what it means to love. That's your choice this morning. Don't leave this morning without asking how to receive him and the gift of eternal life. And if you know him already, what are you doing to tell this word about about the treasure that you have in your life? If I discovered a huge treasure that was so much, that was so so big I couldn't ever spend it on myself, wouldn't you want to give it away? Like Carnegie and and Rockefeller. So much wealth. What am I going to do with it all? I'm going to give it away because it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you have the greatest treasure in the universe and outside of the universe, in Jesus Christ, why are you not giving him away? I'll close with the scripture. Revelation 22.12 says, And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work shall be. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You know who spoke those words? Jesus Christ. God bless you. Thank you.